0: listening to the Talk and Turkey podcast with your host Nicholas Caldereri, from the studios of Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. In Turkey podcast. We have a very special show today. He's a Montreal Canadiens beat reporter. Many know him as the Bowtie Guy. John Liu, how are you today?
1: Great, right, thanks. Thanks for having me on the you show, know, Nicholas.
0: Now, John, I gotta ask do you ever do anything to get your voice ready before you go on air? Uh,
1: no, not really. Um, uh, I just. <laughs> <laughs> Most days are good days, so I don't really have to, you know, warm it up or, uh, you know, generally don't have uh, any uh, issues with uh, you know like frog in the throat or anything like that. I just sort of go. Uh, but having said that, that's, uh, I don't. Uh, I don't. I'm not like a play-by-play guy or a color commentator where my colleagues that uh, do broadcasts that uh, talk for two and a half uh, to three hours, uh, yeah. they have to take better care of their voices. But uh, you know, for me, use it in small doses, and so it's uh, there's not much maintenance required.
0: So you started out at CKY News in Winnipeg. What made you make the transition into sports?
1: Um, it was a real, uh, very uh, once. A, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity, Nicholas. Uh, when I was at CKY, that was actually I was still uh, a student at the time when I was working at CKY. I was in the mm-hmm. uh, second semester of my second, my graduating year of uh, journalism college, and I had been hired out of. Uh, uh, an internship uh, just prior to Y2K over Christmas and heading into New Year's, a Y2K, um, by uh, as a news reporter with, uh, with CKY. They kind of gave me a two-week audition while I was still going to school and then hired me um, to do part-time news reporting uh, while I was still doing my second semester. But prior to doing that, um, right at the start of, of 2000, in January 2000, uh, going back to the previous November, I'd, uh, I'd have been awarded a, an internship with TSN in Toronto, um, that I had applied for, and so my new employers uh, with CKY were very gracious about it, and, uh, mm. and and said, you know what, go to Toronto, go have a great experience, learn everything you can. And uh, I found out after the fact, uh, you know, a few weeks or a couple of months later, that they that yeah, they said uh, in the newsroom that he's not coming back.
0: <laughs> you know,
1: <laughs> they had that much, they had that much uh, confidence in me that uh, they felt that when I went to Toronto, um, that if I went looking for a job, I would have gotten one with TSN. Yeah. And, and really, it, it, did, it wasn't my intention now. Uh, that was, you know, like I, I went to TSN in February of 2000 to do my internship and, to, and did about mm-hmm. a three-week stint. Um, and at the end of it, I applied for... Uh, I not applied for a job. I left a demo tape with, uh, with um, the producers, mm-hmm. uh, just more for the sake of wanting to keep in touch that's, you know, sometime down the road. Uh, if the opportunity was there, then let's talk. But um, one thing led to another... Um, Uh, A recruiting officer watched my tape, really liked it, gave it to uh, the vice president of programming at the time, who uh, really liked what was on the reel, and so he wanted to meet me, and one thing led to another, and they sent me out to do a story the the next day, right before I was ending my internship and heading back to Winnipeg to to pick up where I had left off, just go
0: back to college and finish my semesters and graduate. And, uh, yeah, so they they offered me a job out of the blue um, back in, Huh.
1: in February of 2000, and so I, I went home, um, back to Winnipeg, just got my affairs tied up and cleaned up and house in order, and uh, a couple of weeks later moved out to Toronto in March of 2000 and never looked back, it's coming up mm-hmm. on 19 years actually, just in a few weeks from now it'll be 19 years with TSN, so yeah, it
0: was How did that uh, set a th-
1: once in a lifetime
0: opportunity. Yeah, how did that first story go? Was it a little bit of a rocky start or you smooth sailed right into it?
1: Well, the, the story that they had me do the audition was uh, uh, it was a Raptors shoot-around uh, the morning of a game day at the Air Canada Centre and so I uh, went down to do uh, scrums. So I went with one of the cameramen uh, that's based in Toronto who ended up being one of my regular shooters after I got hired and uh, we went down to the Air Canada Centre and Know did uh, did scrums with uh, the Coach Butch Carter at the time and some of the players, uh, Vince Carter being uh, the big star and had just uh, taken the basketball world by storm by with his uh, with a slam dunk contest. It's funny, <laughs> we're talking about this, you know, the weekend of the yeah. uh, NBA All Star game when you know, like that was essentially one of the. Um, um, uh, I was interning at the time when that was happening, but uh, you know, Vince Carter turned out to be one of the athletes that I covered extensively in my first uh, first two to three years with Toronto until he got traded. And so, yeah, so it was quite an eye opening experience being uh, you know at the Air Canada Center, uh, interviewing or scrumming you know professional athletes and uh, uh, professional head coach, and uh, so uh, it was uh, it was a very interesting experience. Uh, wrote my story up, and um, it uh, it went went fine. I mean, they liked it enough along with, um, my demo reel that's, uh, they, uh, mm-hmm. they felt like it was worth taking a chance on a raw rookie who, uh, still hadn't graduated from from college, but they liked, <laughs> uh, they liked, uh, my potential and they liked my writing skills. And, uh, and plus, you know, they'd gotten to know me over the three plus weeks that I've been interning. So yeah. they had a sense of what, what I was about and yeah. you know, my work ethic. And, uh, what my writing was like, uh, in a, in a sports newsroom setting. Because up until that point, I, you know, I was doing, uh, you know, just a little bit of news reporting and, and, you know, journalism assignments. So yeah. there wasn't a whole huge body of work that they could, uh, really glean information. And so, uh, they really, the fellow who took, who hired me, I really owe him a debt of gratitude. Keith Kelly, who, uh, who actually moved on to many positions, uh, after TSN, uh, one of the most uh, prominent being uh, the president of Rogers, he helped broker the deal to scoop the NHL national rights from TSN to Rogers. So <laughs> yeah. The guy who hired me kind of pulled the rug out from underneath uh, TSN many years later, but hey, that's the business. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Keith Kelly, uh, he hired me, and I, I, I'll always owe him a debt of gratitude for taking a chance on a guy that was very green.
0: So watching you on air, it seems like you're extremely comfortable with your sense of style, for a moment in time, you were known as the bow tie guy for all those bow ties you wore. How did that all come about?
1: Um. Well, to be honest, the you, Um. In my previous career, I used to. I wore suits every day, and uh, I wore bow ties from time to time then as well. So I mean, it wasn't anything really due to me, um, and it was just something that uh, a friend of mine, when you know, like. Once I was at TSN, a friend of mine encouraged me. He said, "Hey, you know what? You used to wear them back in the day. Why don't you wear them again?" And so I thought, <laughs> "Okay, well, why not?" So the thing is that being in Montreal, the uh, the dean of the bow tie, uh, Dave Stubbs, who used to write for the Montreal Gazette exactly. and is now with the NHL, I mean, he wears them to, uh, every every game day, and so it was like, well, it felt like I was kind of cutting his grass, but our styles are you know pretty different, um, and so. Uh, um yeah so I, I try it every once in a while my 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 line is that uh, the bow tie is dave's fastball and it's my change up right? <laughs> um i don't wear them every game i don't wear them every shoes and just you know when the mood strikes me i'll i'll, I'll put one on but uh, yeah it's uh, keeps people guessing and uh, a lot of people
0: seem to like it so obviously you've been covering the habs for many years is there a moment that you look back upon and just say wow that was a cool moment
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Plenty of times. Uh, primarily, um, primarily, uh, during the playoffs because the city just comes alive in a way that's very different from regular season and certainly uh, diametrically opposed to, uh, what they don't make the playoffs like they have uh, two out of the last three years. And, uh, so, uh, I mean, moments that, that come to mind were, uh, like PK Subban, like in the 2014 conference semis against Boston, uh, at the Bell Center, P.K. Subban uh, coming out of the box, getting a a pass to him and uh, going in on the breakaway and scoring on Duke Rask. and I don't think I've ever heard um, a cheer that loud for any sport in any venue over the years. Uh, It was just absolutely thunderous, it was deafening and that's just a small sample, one example of um, what the atmosphere is like in the Bell Center where the fans are just so passionate, so loud and um, I mean hockey's a religion in Montreal and so it really is a privilege and an honor to be uh, to be on this beat you know covering the most uh, historic mm-hmm. franchise in, in the NHL well pretty much well uh, one of the most historic and professional sports period and uh, so I'm starting my, I'm in the midst of my 12th season and it's gone by so fast but uh, mm-hmm. you know when I think about the, the players that I've uh, that I've come into contact with that I've covered over the years and the veterans the alumni uh, you name it you know Bella, I mean uh, uh, legends like Jean Beliveau and Guy yeah. Lafleur and Henri Richard and uh, Bob Gainey. Yeah. Uh, the list goes on, and you know, having covered uh, future legends for the Canadians uh, from the starts of their career, like uh, like like Carey Price. Well, and um, Max Pacioretty before he got traded, uh, PK Subban before he got traded. But uh, you know, mm-hmm. you guys that are coming up and established uh, pros who will be in the Hall of Fame, like Shea Weber. Again, the list goes on. It's just a never ending uh, parade of, of, of really um, respected and venerable names and, uh, and uh, reputations and, mm. uh, that that really that it's the whole tapestry of the history of that franchise, and I'm really lucky to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, and for me, I'd have to uh, I don't know if you were covering the Canadians at this time, but the Saku Koivu Cancer game versus the Ottawa Senators was really a special moment. I think it was the longest-standing ovation at the Bell Center. And just to see the reception that he got, and he even started to get emotional. It was just mm-hmm. really a surreal moment.
1: Yeah, oh, and that's just uh, that just speaks to the the, the, the absolute passion of the And I did not cover the game that you're talking about, Nicholas, but that's a name that I did put on the list. <coughs> I covered Zaku uh, from when I got here in 2007, starting in 2007 until he left the team as a free agent in 2009. So I had about three seasons with him. Um, and uh, I mean, what a gentleman! Uh, just a class act, and carried himself with the, uh, you know, with 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 grace and uh, dignity, and you know, gave his all for the franchise his entire career, and uh, and just a real yeah. uh, giving soul too. I had a, a close friend who died of cancer in um, in in 2008, and uh, prior to that, uh, you know, Saku had sent when I told Saku about this friend of mine, um, you know, he sent him little mementos and. A personalized note um, when my friend was in the midst of his cancer treatments. And, you know, he was just very supportive, and my friend got to meet him in 2007 on Super Bowl weekend. um, But, I mean, Saku is just one example of many, many players on that team and and the whole NHL, too. Like, hockey players have big, good hearts. And, uh, you know, just they give up their time and, uh, you know, they're very gracious when uh, when people who. uh,
0: Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that because you're often at ringside at, talking to the players either in the dressing room or outside the dressing room and it sounds like Saku was one of those guys who would give him give a lot of his time is there any other players that you really enjoyed dealing with on a personal level
1: oh yeah yeah PK Subban um his uh, uh his involvement with the uh, Montreal Children's Hospital uh, the, I mean, the ten million dollar pledge that uh, that he that he dedicated himself to and still does. Um, uh, he's just still so connected to the city uh, because of the fans and the kids and you know just the time that he spent here was so impactful in his in his life, not just his professional life, but his life period because he was a Canadian fan. And so PK was a he was a really enjoyable to to, to get yeah. to know to chat with. Uh, yeah. And I uh, really respected and admired his uh, his charitable uh, efforts. Uh, but really, all, all pretty much all the guys, if they don't have foundations, they do have favorite charities. They hold golf tournaments. They um, they make personal appearances. They give up their own time of their uh, of their own funds uh, to support various charities. Often are largely associated with kids. Jonathan Drouin uh, with his parents is very involved with uh, underprivileged kids uh, in the Laurentian's north of uh, Montreal. Uh, um, yeah, so I mean I, I could go on. Um, yeah. <laughs> pretty much all of them. They, they all have involvement in some way or other, but, uh, but yeah, just uh, yeah. hockey players in general uh, they're a pretty good bunch of guys.
0: During your career you've covered the NHL, the MLB, NBA, CFL, NFL, and the PGA Tour. How important is it to be versatile in the industry
1: well it's part of the you know, survival really um when I think about what the industry was like when I broke into it 19 years ago where uh we were just starting to use cell phones and PDAs didn't exist uh, I remember I uh, I bought a Palm Pilot I don't know if you even know what that no was, I
0: don't but, yeah it was
1: sort of like a first generation uh, PDA uh like a handheld device that you could use a little stylus tap on it and you know I, I used to type scripts on it which I would voice uh, and oh, we used okay. to phone in we used to phone in our scripts over the uh, over uh, over cell phone like we didn't have email capacity with these devices uh, forget what year we did uh, eventually get uh, blackberries but uh, even then the first couple of blackberries that we had were very rough very um, archaic compared to what today's smartphones are so just talking about that particular device it goes hand in hand with the um, the the light speed change and pace of change uh, to the industry, uh, to media in general, about how uh, everything is so tied and connected to, to social media. But like, I mean, when I started, uh, Twitter didn't exist. Uh, certainly, Snapchat, uh, Instagram, those those didn't exist. The internet was still starting to learning to run. Not, you know, I mean, it was past the walking stage, but it was learning to run and not quite in full gallop and so with all the uh the changes in technology uh, the uh the way that we deliver content has changed dramatically as well where it's no longer about traditional television where the six thirty uh sports center yeah. it was only six thirty at the time when i started then it became six and then we had the five o'clock show so much of this has become about immediacy you know like getting information uh and content out to our viewers listeners our uh, our uh, Followers um, that everybody wants it now um, or yeah. yesterday, and so um, uh, yeah, basically the uh, it, it ramps up. Uh, I guess the intensity of competition and the demands, but it also puts demands on you know working with um, a high degree of efficiency at a higher pace, at a greater pace too. Because you know if you're trying yeah. to get something out there quickly, well, you don't want to be rushing. You don't want to make factual errors. You don't want to be uh, sloppy or irresponsible with the way you're you're sending information out. And we all make mistakes, and I certainly have made my share over the years. And and uh, But the thing is that you learn to, um, uh, I guess, adjust to it, that this is the pace that we expect of ourselves and that our, our stakeholders expect of us. And so uh, that's just part of what the job is. But, uh, yeah, certainly when you talk about the number of sports that I've covered, I don't cover as many sports... In Montreal, as I did in Toronto, and uh, we don't travel as much as we used to, and so uh, yeah, so I don't get as much variety. Um, A little bit more concentrated. Certainly, hockey takes up the greatest amount of my time, and CFL, and then occasionally uh, other sports may pop up here and there. But uh, we've become a little bit more specialized over the years. But but being versatile, being able to cover myriad sports and uh, uh, delivering them on different platforms, you know, like whether it's television, internet radio, uh, you name it, um, the other different forms of uh, social media, you have to be able to do it. But the, the fundamental basis to all reporting is writing. So if you're not yeah. a good writer, then, well, you're you're behind the eight ball, and chances are you probably wouldn't get a job in the industry in the first place if you're not a good writer.
0: Yeah, and I was going to continue on that. It seems like you kind of answered what is the hardest part of your job that the average onlooker may not notice, and it seems like, Handling it, handling the pressure of when Claude Julien will juggle his lines, and they skate out at practice, and you got to tweet him out with uh, four or five other reporters, and it's a competition, really.
1: Um, well, that's that's a, that's a very simple
0: duty, the one that you described. I'd say like the hardest yeah. part is like trying to uh, serve our
1: um, our publics in a way that um, that differentiates you from your competition uh, because. Everybody's looking for a scoop. Everybody is trying to get their their work out there fastest. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody wants to be the best and is trying to be the best. And so, well, um, you know, trying to find the best angles, the best stories, and presenting them in a way that's uh, the most informative and entertaining—that's the hard yeah. part. That's the challenge, but it's a good challenge. You know, uh, I don't I don't mm-hmm. look at those uh, those elements of the job as stressful at all. I think it's a it's a challenge because you're you know if you're um, if you're going to last, you want to always push yourself to that. You want to try to do things a little bit different, a little bit better. Um, uh, every opportunity you can. And I mean, granted sometimes fantastic stories or angles will fall in your lap. I mean, those stories write themselves. And so you don't really have to work too hard or go too far to find what's uh, the best elements of those stories are. They're right there in front of you. It's when you have to do the, uh, the day to day, sometimes mundane, um, or uh, routine types of, of stories. But it's like, well, how can you make it a little bit fresher, a little bit more yeah. interesting? That That's a little bit more of a challenge. So, you know, trying to serve up a, more of a nice fillet instead of ham and <laughs> eggs. And uh,
0: so, uh, yeah, but that's, that you know, in any professions like
1: that, you have days that are more stimulating and days that aren't as much. Yeah, That's just the way it is.
0: What would you say is the most rewarding part of your job then? Well,
1: oh, I get paid to watch sports
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's as simple as that um you now i uh,
1: i i wish that i had done a tabulation of how many games and events that i've gone to over the years and kind of averaged out what i would have paid for in tickets if i was a fan going to see these events and then then tabulated yeah. and see okay well how much did I essentially get paid relative to what I would have had to pay to attend all these games over the years. And so a lot of people in history uh, refer to the, uh, the, the sports business as the candy store. And, yeah, you know what, there's a lot of truth to that. It's not life or death, although having said that, I have covered my share of funerals over the year and years um, and you know, some some difficult situations mm-hmm. to look at what happened with the Humboldt bus tragedy and yeah. gut wrenching. And my colleagues who did that were absolutely amazing in the way they handled it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there are, there, there are elements where life really collides with sports that's that again, make it a challenge, um, because of the, um, the, the, the way you want to handle those, those stories, um, and treat the people who are suffering with, um, with respect and consideration um, and grace um, yeah. and dignity, without uh, um, <clears throat> without
0: compromising what you have to do, which is still your job, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, when it is
1: about life and death, in those rare instances, that's another good challenge. But uh, but having said that, uh, most of the time it's just fun uh, because again, we all my colleagues and I we get paid to watch sports, so that's that's, that's part of it.
0: Last couple of questions here regarding the Montreal Canadiens, obviously. The Habs are last or 30th in the league on the power play, excuse me. <laughs> Do you think they can win in the playoffs with a, a struggling power play?
1: Well, Chloe Julian's 2011 Bruins did uh, with a horrendous power play. Mm-hmm. They won the Stanley Cup without scoring a power play goal against the Canadians in the first round. And so it can be done. Uh, the Canadians are very good at five on five, which ultimately in the playoffs, that's how you live and die. Uh, special teams can be a difference but we as hockey fans all know that the refs throw the whistles away they put them in their back pockets and there aren't nearly as many man advantage opportunities And so yeah it can be a difference maker but you don't live and die by your special teams well all all, all things being equal you live and die more so by 5 on 5 in the playoffs and so I think the Canadians can survive how far they can go, don't know. But if they don't get their power play in order, uh, that might actually cost them an opportunity to
0: make the playoffs. Because now we see they're in the first oh, yeah, that's wild card position as we speak, right? And uh, the uh, the ninth place team in the Eastern Conference is nipping at their heels,
1: mm-hmm. you know, as well as the eighth place team. And so the Canadians really, uh, you know, they're what was before the road trip that they're currently uh, that they're the, on which they're currently playing um they were in a somewhat uh comfortable uh position in terms of their playoff positioning but it's going to be an absolute
0: uh
1: it's going to be a sprint you know, over the final yeah. 20 plus game and,
0: and uh, you kind of mentioned it a couple teams are clawing behind them so it brings up the uh, question at the trade deadline do you think they'll uh, be more inclined to make a move
1: oh yeah yeah mark bergerman will make a move or two uh, that's been his history and uh he knows that his team is, is, is heading for the playoffs, uh, whether they'll admit he and um, everybody in the organization would admit that they've exceeded expectations. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they would. Um, their goal when they were speaking to us in the media at the beginning of the season was to make the playoffs. But now that they've done better than most people outside their dressing room would have predicted, um, that raises an interesting conundrum. A good problem for Mark Bergevin to have is, well, what moves does he make and what does he give up? It's, uh, he's probably, what he said back in January, is probably going to be the plan that he'll stick with and that he's not going to mortgage the future for short-term fix. That uh, if he can get somebody with term that can help the club longer than a year or so, then he'll probably make that move. But having said that, he's not going to give up any of his blue-chip prospects. Uh, that would have to be an absolute deal he couldn't refuse. And I, I, mm-hmm. I just don't think those deals are out there because – any player you could potentially get, well, what team would want to trade that, especially if they're in a contending position? They uh, want to hold on to those players, right? So,
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think Mark Bergevin has done a great job of managing expectations. By at the beginning of the season, saying that the expectation was to make the playoffs, because it's better to exceed expectations than uh, come up short. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Every time. Yeah, and uh, the he was. Him tempering um, tempering expectations um, was pretty easy, considering how how awful a year they had last season. But having said that, when he spoke to us at the golf tournament, third of the way in September, he was just coming off an off season, which was a, a complete 180 from the previous summer, uh, where he made some yeah. very good moves that turned out to be very... Uh, well, they changed the, the look and the dynamic of the club didn't see it until they started playing games and showing that they
0: were for real and I'm speaking of the the Max Domi and uh, Thomas Tatara positions yeah. um, uh, but you know what those those moves look extremely good on Bergevin uh, whether he becomes uh, a candidate for the GM of the Year don't know but I think
1: that's uh, based on how his club has performed and what he uh, what hand he had to turn his club's fortunes around since last season I think he certainly deserves consideration as uh as somebody to win Executive
0: of the Year. Last question for you here. We've obviously we obviously seen. Wow, excuse me, Caden Primo, uh, the goalie prospect for the Habs at the World Juniors, shine versus Finland, and he recently won the MVP at the Beanpot. I'm just curious, how do the Canadians avoid another Zach Fucale situation here?
1: Um, hmm. I think I, I don't want to disparage
0: was Zach Vicali, but I I, I believe that Caden Primo is better goaltender. Um, mm.
1: That uh, yeah, uh, when you take a look at his, his accomplishments, his body of work, um, and uh, to be honest with you, I haven't seen much of Caden Primo's play other than the World Juniors. But I just get the feeling that he's he's actually a better goaltender. And um, so the thing about Zach Vicali is that he didn't step up; that he didn't um, uh, create a situation where he might have pushed his way into the Canadians lineup as a backup where the Canadians wouldn't have had to go looking for veteran backups for Carey Price over the last handful of years. So uh, where Primo stacks up once he signs a pro contract and starts coming to uh, training camps, hard to predict. Um, The fact is that the Canadians will have a little bit of a competition for who will back up Carey Price because you know, do they move on from Antiniemi after this season? It's Charlie Lindgren. Charlie Lindgren, imagine?
0: yeah. M- uh, you know, McNiven, is he
1: uh, NHL-worthy? Um, and Caden Primo, what's his what's his ceiling, right? The um, thing is that there's any of these guys that we're talking about, they're, they're more of a long-term solution. And so, ultimately, some of them could just be currency. You know, if you get them some experience and they really show their potential, well, maybe they become parts of a deal that – that helps smart Bergevin acquire valuable assets. But, I mean, Carey Price is not going anywhere.
0: Right. No. So he's,
1: he's under contract for another seven-plus seasons. So barring uh, setbacks in terms of his health or performance, he's, here, he's still here for the long term. So any of these young prospects, the best they can hope for is to become Carey Price's backup. But having said that, the older Carey Price gets, chances are his backup, whoever that may be, is going to play more games. And you're seeing that trend in the NHL now that the, the horse-type starters are not playing 70 games anymore. Teams are trying to get them to max at about 60. That way they're not burned out when they get to the playoffs, like you've seen with, say, uh, Sergei Bobrovsky in years past, right? Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, the, uh, the goaltending situation, uh, I, I don't imagine that we'll see a dramatic change in the next year or two, but it'll be interesting to see who kind of slides into that spot I'm Carey Price over the uh, over the over the short term
0: that'll do it for this episode of the podcast i really enjoyed talking to you john thanks so much for coming on well,
1: it's my pleasure any
0: time